Hello, everybody, and welcome into, well, actually, I guess this is not the Bible Reading Podcast. This is not an official episode. This is an appendix, an addition, uh, a special episode. I mentioned this in episode number 172 of the podcast. I'd like to add a message that was preached, uh, I think, two or three weeks ago at my home church about the city of God. Um, and this is obviously completely optional if you want to listen to it or not. It's uh, about 45, 45 or 50 minutes or so. And I think it will help us to understand episode number 172 a little better. Uh, but it will also, it, it was one of my favorite episodes, uh, my favorite sermons to ever prepare for just because there's so many amazing things in the Bible about the city of God. So I'll just leave it here. You take it, you leave it, you do whatever you want with it. Throw it in the dumpster if you'd like. Uh, I might do this every now and then from time to time because our church doesn't actually have a podcast of the messages. I might throw a few of them in here. I'm planning on doing that with uh, our Wednesday Night Racism series uh, that is ongoing right now. But anyway, uh, these special editions are for you to use or lose either way. I hope it's an edifying blessing for you, and we will see you tomorrow. So today we're going to be in the book of Hebrews and we're going to kind of dwell in Hebrews 11 and 12 as Manny told you, but I want to start with Hebrews chapter 7 because as we've been going through Hebrews, we are seeing how and what Jesus is up to right now in heaven. So Hebrews 7 verse 25 says this, and by the way, as you're looking up Hebrews 7 25, I do want to encourage you to share the message on Facebook. If you're watching on Facebook right now, why don't you share and invite some people to watch along with us. Today's message is going to be an interesting one. I think it will be a very hopeful one for people to watch. This is, you know, as a preacher, all of the word of God is good. But sometimes you find passages and topics that are deeply fascinating to you and fresh in a way that you haven't really considered or heard before. I think this is today going to be one of the deepest messages we've had together since I've been at Valley Baptist. I feel like this is about as deep as I can go. And and I'm not saying intelligent. Intelligent and deep are two different things. So I'm not saying this is going to be a, this is not going to be over anybody's head intellectually, but we are going to wade into some very deep waters today and and, in a good way. It's a good, deep, amazing, awesome way. So if you are of that mindset, share this with your friends. Hebrews 7.25 says, therefore he, Jesus, is able to save completely those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So Jesus, right now, as we're going through this quarantine and this pandemic and whatever it is you guys are going through in addition to that, and there's been a lot, as we're going through this, we know, according to the word of God, that Jesus is in heaven interceding for us. You might say, well, what does interceding mean? Well, to intercede means to go between to mediate, to bring two parties together, uh, or to pray on behalf of another person. That's what Jesus is doing. As we look to Hebrews, we see that Jesus is right now in the heavenly tabernacle of heaven at the right hand of the Father, and he is interceding for us. Not only did he take our sins on himself, not only did he die on the cross for our sins, not only was he resurrected from the dead and promised us eternal life, but in addition to all of that, for the last almost 2,000 years, Jesus has been in the temple of heaven interceding for us, praying for us to the Father, bringing his people and the Father closer together. So have you ever thought about that passage? I was walking this week and it all of a sudden struck me as amazing that Jesus is in heaven praying for us. If you think about that, that's just, it's mind boggling that Jesus in heaven would be praying. I mean, if prayer is that important, if prayer is so important that Jesus is interceding for us right now, 24-7 in heaven, 
then I think that tells us how important it is on earth for you and I to be praying for each other. I noticed this week, Romans 8, 26 through 28 kind of goes along with that. And it says this, in the same way, the spirit also helps us in our weakness because we do not know what to pray for as we should, but the spirit himself intercedes for us with inexpressible groanings. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the spirit because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And I believe that passage means that the Holy Spirit might intercede for us with Jesus and Jesus might intercede for us with the Father, which is kind of mind blowing. Uh, But I want you to do this. At the very least, this passage means that both the Son and the Spirit are praying for us on the on the every day praying for us. And I want you to do this this week when you are weary and discouraged or downhearted or frustrated or tired or feeling bad or whatever. I want you to remind yourself that right now in heaven, the son of God, Jesus is praying for you. And right now the Holy Spirit is interceding for you in if you can tell, I'm kind of losing my voice today. We had a rough night here. It was a crazy night. Um, all sorts of rough things flying around. I have had the experience as the pa- as a pastor over the last 10 or 15 years that Saturday nights are the most spiritually active night possible. Things are going to go crazy on Saturday nights. And so, so it was this morning we had somebody just pounding on our door and ringing the doorbell over and over and over again at four in the morning. And uh, that was a weird situation. I'll tell that story one day, but not a lot of sleep last night. So if my voice is cracking a little bit, just bear with me. It'll, it'll recover in a minute. One more focus passage to begin with. Hebrews chapter three. We're talking today about the city of God, the city of God. Hebrews 3 verse 12 says this, the one who conquers or the one who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God and he will never go out again. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. Okay, so this is that Revelation 12 passage. This is Jesus speaking to the church in Philadelphia. and. He is saying some weird things. He's saying, okay, you guys are going through hard times, but if you overcome in the power I give you, I'm going to do something for you. And this is what he says he's going to do. I'm going to write on you the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven in my new name. Now I've pondered that verse and that passage for years what in the world does that mean? Jesus is going to write on us the name of God. He's going to write on us the name of the city of God, and he's going to write on us his name. That's mind-blowing. The thing we want to focus on today is the city of God and what that is all about. So this week has been a hard week for many of us. Um, and I know this because I've heard from you. In fact, I had a discussion uh, this week at the very beginning of the week with a Valley Baptist Church member. I'm not going to name her name, uh, but she said, I have heard lately of so many people that have died. And she, she said, it just close friends and family and things like that. And she said, it's, it's crazy. And she said, none of it's coronavirus related. I've just heard of a lot of people that have died lately. And that was the beginning of the week. Since that beginning of the week, there has been, I have heard from three church members that have either lost uh, immediate family members, close, close family members. I'm not talking about distant cousins. I'm talking about immediate family or that have lost very close and very dear friends. And that's, that's hard. 
in the midst of what we're already going through, this pandemic and coronavirus, in the midst of kind of the worry that comes from that, you know, some of you are worried about sick, being sick. Some of you are worried about the economy and what effects it's going to have. There's such a spectrum of viewpoints on this thing across the body of Christ. Some people think it's a, a big hoax and been overblown by the media. Some people think it's uh, been underblown by people and it's uh, the dangers are underestimated. We have such a wide spectrum of belief all across the body of Christ. And in addition to all of the confusion and worry and fear that we're going through in pandemic, people have been going through just other hard times at a higher level. It's like we're being sifted by God. And we've been looking to Jesus in the temple of heaven. We've been looking to Jesus as we've been going through these nine or 10 weeks of quarantine and pandemic and trouble and and frustration. We've been looking to Jesus for assurance and encouragement. And today we're going to look at another thing, not stopping looking at Jesus. We've got to keep our eyes, as Hebrews says, focused on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, so that we won't grow weary right now. And we're at the point in the race the coronavirus race, the 2020 race, the life race, we're at the point of our race where we're growing weary. So we have to look to Jesus day by day to keep our heart from just being broken and frustrated and 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 stopping and quitting. So we have to keep looking at Jesus. But I think we're going to see something in the scripture today that we can also look to in anticipation and hope. And that is the city of God. So turn with me. We're going to begin in Hebrews 11, verse 8. Hebrews 11, verse 8. So if some of you guys want to post these uh, scripture references in the comments on Facebook Live so nobody misses them. Hebrews 11, verse 8, which says this. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed and set out for a place that he was going to receive as an inheritance. He went out even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he stayed as a foreigner in the land of promise, living in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, co-heirs of the same promise. Verse 10, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Now that's a strange verse. So the Bible tells us that this guy, Abram of Iraq, then remember Abram, Abraham, he would become Abraham, but when he started, he was Abram. He was, he was from Iraq. So any kind of uh, racism or whatever that Christians have towards people of the Middle East is just mind-blowingly absurd because Jesus was from the Middle East and the father of uh, Israel, Abram, was from Iraq. He was an Iraqi. So Abram, the Iraqi, is called by God to leave his land and his family and go to a place. Where was he called to go? Well, he didn't know. God just said, hey, go out. I'm going to show you a place you're going to go to. God made a promise to him that God would give Abram and his descendants land. And the Bible says that Abram launched out on that promise to a place he didn't know. And he did it because he was looking forward to a city who has foundations that is built and designed the architecture by God. So this is not talking about a human city. It's talking about the city of God. Now, the crazy thing for Abraham is that God's promise to him in particular has not been fully fulfilled yet because Abraham died not having inherited the promised land. Did his descendants inherit it? Yes, but Abraham was also given that promise and he has not yet received it. He will, but he hasn't yet. Acts chapter seven, verse five uh, says this. Abraham left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. From there, after his father died, God had him moved to the land on which you are now living. But 
He didn't give him an inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground, says Acts, says Stephen in Acts. But he promised to give it to him as a possession and to his descendants after him, even though he was childless. In other words, God called Abram to leave everything. Abram did, not even knowing where he was going. Abram has yet to inherit that promise, but he did it because he was looking forward to the city of of God that was to come. Abraham died without inheriting his inheritance. But good news, he will inherit it one day. But Abraham wasn't the only one that died without inheriting his inheritance because Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13 says this. It goes through a list of Old Testament saints. And then it says, they all died in faith although they had not yet received the things they were promised. But they saw them from a distance, greeted them, and confessed that they were foreigners and temporary residents on the earth, aliens and strangers. Now, those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a homeland, a homeland. If they were thinking about where they came from, they would have had an opportunity to Turn, but they now desire a better place, a heavenly place. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. But you and I, brothers and sisters, we're aliens and strangers, just like they were. And this is a fascinating passage. Many of the Old Testament saints died without having yet received promises that God promised them. But little did they know, God was preparing a city for them, the city of God. So what in the world is the city of God? That's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to see this theme, this beautiful picture of the city of God, which runs all throughout the scripture from Genesis to Revelation, literally, the Bible talks about the city of God. And at least for me, 20 for 25 years, actually 26 years of ministry, I've never preached on the city of God. I've never seen it this clearly. I'm like busting at the seams with excitement about this because I've never seen it this clearly. I wonder if any of you have ever heard a sermon that was specifically focused on the city of God. If you have, or if you haven't, leave it in the comments because I'm curious. I've been in church for a long time and I don't think I've ever heard a sermon on the city of God, a message on the city of God. Well, that's what we're focused on today. We're talking about what is the city of God, why is it important, and why is looking forward to the city of God a comfort to us? Why did Abram leave his family and his land and his people to go to heaven only knew where because he was looking forward to the city of God? If Abram did that, then the city of God must be a massively huge deal. And I got to tell you, friends, it is such a bigger deal than we've ever realized. The city of God is a huge deal. So let's look at Hebrews chapter 12. And as Og says in the comments that uh, Augustine wrote a book on the city of God. And yes, he did. And man, is it deep. This was in the 400, I think the early 400s. A.D., the early church father, Augustine, from Africa, African church father, uh, one of the deepest thinkers we've ever had in church history, wrote a book called The City of God. And today we're going to touch on some very similar themes that Augustine did uh, almost 1,600 years ago. Uh, so Hebrews chapter 12, kind of our focus passage here. This is the writer of Hebrews talking about Mount Sinai and Mount Zion, okay? So there's there's two mountains in Israel, Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. And this could be a little bit confusing, but bear with me because like I said, we're in deep waters today, really, really deep waters. And Mount Zion is often used in the Bible as a metaphor for the city of God, which is also called the heavenly Jerusalem. Are you lost yet? Well, Mount Zion is a literal place in Israel. But when the Bible often talks about Mount Zion, it talks about it in terms of a heavenly mountain, a heavenly city, the heavenly city, the heavenly Jerusalem. We've learned in Hebrews 
that the temple that Moses, the tabernacle that Moses built was a copy of the temple that was built in heaven. And I believe the same holds true in many ways for the temple of Solomon that uh, Solomon built and was given instructions for. These were things that already existed in heaven. And I think the city of God, uh, the 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 Mount Zion, the earthly Jerusalem, the, the earthly Jerusalem is modeled on the city of God that already existed in heaven. So let's read in Hebrews chapter 12 about the city of God, because um, if you're a Christian, you're going to live there once. And just like my family and I did before we moved from Birmingham, Alabama to Salinas, California, we read up on Salinas. We looked at satellite views. We looked at Google Street views. We zoomed over the city as, in a virtual way, checking everything out, looking at all of the lay of the land, the ocean, all of that kind of thing. We wanted to know what the city that we were going to be living in is like. And maybe you want to know what the city you're going to be living in is like too, because if you're in Christ, spoiler alert, you're going to spend an awful lot of time, actually not an awful lot of time, an excellent lot of time in the city of God. So Hebrews 12, verse 18, this is what the writer of Hebrews says to followers of Jesus. You have not come to what could be touched, to a blazing fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to the blast of the trumpet and the sound of words. Those who heard it begged that not another word be spoken to them, for they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The appearance was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. So you read that in Hebrews chapter 12, and if you're not familiar with what's going on, you're like, what the heck is this writer of Hebrews talking about? Uh, Moses trembling with fear, a mountain that if you touched it, you died, the blast of a trumpet, storms and fire. It sounds terrifying. Well, an amazing thing happened in Exodus 32. We're not going to read it all today, just a little chunk of it, but you ought to go back and read it because this has a lot to do with the city of God. In Exodus 32, um, Moses had been leading the children of Israel for quite some time. And the children of Israel were adults. We just call them the children of Israel, I guess, because they act like children, just like you and I act like children sometimes. Well, they were fussing and complaining and arguing and not listening to Moses, even though God was commanding Moses to tell the Israelites various things. God was directly speaking to Moses and the People of Israel were basically ignoring Moses and like fussing all the time. So God said, I'm going to come down, Moses. I'm going to come down and I'm going to speak to you in the sight of the people of Israel. So they'll know that I'm sending you. They'll know that you're not speaking on your own authority. They will know that I'm speaking to you and through you, Moses. And so that's exactly what happened. Unfortunately, it was utterly terrifying to the people when God came down on Mount Sinai and spoke to Moses. In fact, Exodus 32 gives us a little view of this. I want you to picture this in your mind. Have you ever thought about what it would be like to meet God and to see God? Well, this is what it was like when the Israelites saw God and met God. Well, they didn't exactly see God, but they saw the nearness of God. How about we put it like that? Exodus 32, 16. On the third day, when morning came, there was thunder and lightning. There was a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud blast from a ram's horn so that all the people in the camp shuddered. Now, I don't think this was a ram's horn blown on earth. This was a horn blown probably by an angel on the mountain of God. And it was so loud and so terrifying that a couple of million people camped around this mountain were terrified and shaking in terror to hear this horn blast. Verse 17, then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was completely enveloped in smoke because the Lord came down on it in fire 
We don't normally think of God being wrapped in fire, but when the Bible describes the appearance of God, that's what it describes, surrounded by storm and fire, and it honestly just sounds overwhelming, powerful. So the Lord came down on it in fire. Its smoke went up like the smoke of the furnace, and the whole mountain shook violently. As the sound of the ram's horn grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in the thunder. And so the Israelites saw this. They saw the presence of God and they were utterly undone. They were terrified. They begged Moses. They said, don't let God talk to us. You talk to God. We don't want to talk to God. He's scary. He's terrifying. Well, what gives with that? Because that's probably not the image you and I have of God, that he's utterly terrifying to the point where if he were to start talking to us, we would beg him to stop. We would beg other people to tell him to stop. So what's the deal? Well, the point of Hebrews and the city of God is this. God is going to come down again like he did in Exodus 32 on Mount Sinai. And he's not just going to come down for a little while. He's going to come down for an eternity while. And the question is, when we see, you know, this first time that God came down in power in Exodus 32, is it good news or is it terrifying news that God is going to come down? So here's the thing. It would be terrifying news for us that God is going to come down if we didn't know Jesus. Because the Bible says, and actually Hebrews says, and man, I got to tell you as an aside, the more I read Hebrews, the more I'm just astonished at how deep it is. And one of the things we see in Hebrews is God is too holy for us. He is a consuming fire. And you've heard that before. You've probably sang a worship song about God being a consuming fire. In fact, Hebrews 12, 28 says, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful by it. We may serve God acceptably with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. You've heard that verse before. I've quoted it before. Do you know what a consuming fire is? A consuming fire is a fire that burns everything up. This is not a happy thing. God is unbelievable, unbearable, uncontrollable, and unapproachable power. Because of our sin, we would melt like wax in the presence of the Almighty. Because of our sin, we would be undone literally melting down to elements in the presence of God. That's why the Israelites were trembling with fear because God is terrifying to sinners. But, 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 big, big, but, but the writer of Hebrews says it's different now. Why is it different now? Because Jesus did something to make it different. So he says, Back in the day, it was like Mount Sinai. If you were anywhere near God, you would tremble with fear because God is a consuming fire and sinners cannot stand in his presence. Now, you might be thinking, I'm still a sinner. I'm in trouble. Well, hang on, because here comes some radical implications of the good news of Jesus. We keep going in Hebrews 12, verse 22. So the writer of Hebrews says, you haven't come to Mount Sinai, where it's terrifying, and when you were a slave to sin, but now that you're free from sin by Jesus, verse 22, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city, huh? there it is, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. So the city of the living God and the heavenly Jerusalem and the heavenly Mount Zion, they're the same thing. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels, a festive gathering, a party, a celebration. Now, that's different than what happened at Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai was utterly terrible. But the writer of Hebrews is telling us we haven't come to that. We've come to a mind-blowingly amazing celebration and party with 
thousands upon thousands and ten thousands upon ten thousands of angels. Verse 21, to, I was 23, to the assembly of the firstborn, whose names have been written in heaven, to a judge who is God of all, to the spirits of righteous people made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which says better things than the blood of Abel. So what changed? How is it that we're not coming to Mount Sinai anymore to the terrifying presence of God, but we're coming to Mount Zion now to the festive, joyful, amazing, celebrated presence of God? What happened? What changed? Why was the presence and dwelling of God terrifying in the Old Testament and festive in the New Testament? And the answer is right here in the passage. The sprinkled blood of Jesus, the shed blood of Jesus has made us perfect. Perfect. Not because we're perfect, but because the perfect died for us and he paid our debts so that we are perfect. And he's made us perfect. And the perfect have nothing to fear in the presence of a holy God. And that's what's happened. The sinners in the Old Testament were terrified because the sacrifices of animals could not cover their sin and make them perfect. But us who have the benefit of the sacrifice of Jesus, we come to a different city, not the terrifying city. We come to the city of Zion, which is the festive city, because we have been clothed in the blood of Jesus and made perfect by him. Let me give you a somewhat clumsy metaphor to help make sense of this. Imagine you were a homeless orphan, no money, no home, no hope, and you have to steal to live. Hmm? You haven't had a bath in years. You smell worse than a pig that has stepped in a big pile of horse manure. And you're probably infested with fleas in your hair, in your clothes, whatever. And so is your monkey. And even the poorest working class members of your city look down on you and pity you. Now, imagine being that riffraff street right scoundrel and having to appear before the richest people in the city and somehow figure out a way while being infested with fleas and smelling like horse manure, somehow figuring out a way to win the hand of the daughter of the king. There's no way. As disgusting as you were, you would be trembling with fear at the very idea of just stepping into the royal castle and appearing in the royal court. And this is what the Old Testament people felt like in the presence of the Lord. They were like Aladdin. Remember the old story of Aladdin? He's made into a prince by the genie. The Old Testament people were like Aladdin in the presence of royalty only a thousand times worse. And one of the reasons why Aladdin is just such a powerful story is because in a sense, it echoes our story. We weren't merely made into a prince by uh, a blue-skinned genie. We have been made perfect and we have been made and adopted as sons of the king by the sacrifice of the king of kings. So prior to Jesus, People trembled at the presence of God. People trembled at the presence of God, not because he's awful, not because he's evil, but because he's so perfect, so unimaginably, unapproachably perfect, and we're so filthy. But Jesus comes and he makes a better covenant a better relationship between God and man. He gives his life and he takes our sin. So he, he takes our, our mud, our dung, our fleas, our nastiness, our poverty. He takes all those things on himself 
and they soak into his very being so that the father doesn't look at the son. The father turns away from the son and pours out the punishment for our sins on the son, on the cross. He takes all of our fleas. He takes all of our dung. He takes all of our filthy sins on him. And by doing that, he permanently removes those things from us so that we're not filthy anymore. We're not terrified anymore. In fact, Hebrews says we can boldly go into the throne room of heaven because Jesus has opened a door for us and because we're not filthy anymore, because we are washed, we are changed by him. So we don't enter into his presence with terror into anymore. We enter into his presence with thanksgiving and joy. And we don't enter into a terrifying place. We enter into a festive gathering. So Hebrews 13, 12 says this, therefore Jesus also suffered outside the gate of the city so that he might sanctify the people by his own blood. Therefore, let us then go outside the camp to him bearing his disgrace. Verse 14, this is Hebrews 13, verse 14. For we do not have an enduring city here. Instead, we seek the one to come. Man, we could spend all day unpacking Hebrews 13, 14. We do not have an enduring city here. We seek the one to come. Some of you were born and raised in Salinas. Some of you are from Texas and Arizona and all parts in between. Some of us are from Alabama. Some of us are from even further away than that. Whatever place you're from, whatever city you call home, it's not an enduring city. It's a temporary home. And in our hearts, even though we call that home, we long for a better home, a home where there's no suffering, a home where there's no rejection, a home when there's no, where there's no pain, a home where there's no sickness, there's no quarantine, a home where there's no anxiety and depression and death and cancer and heartbreak. That's the home we long for, a home where we don't have to wonder if our bank account is going to cover our needs, a home where we don't have to wonder if there's toilet paper in the grocery stores, a home where we don't have to worry about any of that. We do not have a home like that here, but we are seeking the city to come. We're like Abraham. We're aliens and strangers in this land. Why? Are we aliens and strangers in this land? Because first and foremost, we're not Americans or whatever nationality you are, first and foremost. First and foremost, since the blood of Jesus transformed us, we are citizens of the city of God. Now, why is the city of God significant? Well, I believe the answer to that question might be kind of shocking to you. Because here's the thing about the city of God. I believe our eternal state where we live for millions upon millions upon millions of years is going to be in the city of God. Now, most Christians picture that when they die, they go up somewhere to heaven. And that's true to a degree until that heaven is transformed into a new heavens and a new earth. That's what Revelation 21 tells us. And here's the thing. We're not going to spend eternity in the heaven we think about now. I think, and you check me on this, according to the scripture, we're about to read it. I think we're going to spend eternity instead in the city of God, Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, which is when the saints of God, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, looked forward to the eternal dwelling, they were looking forward like Abraham was to the city of God. And that city is coming to us. Check out Revelation 21, which is probably my favorite passage in all of the Bible. And so we're going to close out talking about Revelation 21. Revelation 21, verse 1, John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, 
for the first heaven, you know, the one we think about now, and the first earth had passed away and it was no more. How about that? It's going to be gone. It's going to be gone. I also saw, verse 2, the holy city, the new Jerusalem. Remember, uh, Hebrews tells us it's also Mount Zion, the heavenly Mount Zion. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. That's mind-blowing. Verse 3, then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling God's living place is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and will be their God. And it's not going to be terrifying anymore. In fact, check out verse four. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Now, if you're following along with us in our Bible reading time as a church, we're reading through the Bible. Today's Isaiah 25 passage just so happens to be about the exact thing that Revelation 21 is talking about. And so 700 years before the birth of Jesus, Isaiah looked forward to the future and saw Mount Zion coming down and he saw what was going to happen. And this is what Isaiah says in Isaiah 25, verse seven, on this mountain, Mount Zion, the city of God, he will swallow up the burial shroud, the shroud over all the peoples, the sheet covering all the nations. When he has swallowed up death, once and for all, the Lord God will wipe away the tears from every face and remove his people's disgrace from the whole earth. For the Lord has spoken. Some of you have faced death this week and it's just absolutely broken your heart. Well, I have good news. The city of God is coming. And when the city of God comes, the God of the city of God, our God, is going to completely consume and destroy and nullify death forever. He's going to take it and he's going to crunch it up and it's going to be no more. It's going to be consumed and keep going in Revelation 21, 9, because we're about to see a picture of the city of God. This is what it's going to look like. And this picture, mind blowing. Verse nine, then one of the seven angels who held the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came and spoke to me. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. He then carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, the city of God, Mount Zion, coming down out of heaven from God. Verse 11. This is Revelation 21, verse 11. Arrayed with God's glory, her radiance, her radiance was like a precious jewel, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. The city had a massive high wall. We're going to find out how high in just a minute. With 12 gates, 12 angels were at the gates. The names of the 12 tribes of Israel's sons were inscribed on the gates. There were three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. The city wall had 12 foundations, and the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb were on the 12 foundations. Verse 15, the one who spoke with me had a golden measuring rod to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. The city is laid out in a square. This is the city of God. By the way, you should be paying attention to this because this is where you're going to live for you know eternity. And you might say, well, it's not big enough for us, right? <laughs> Think again. The city is laid out in a square. Its length and width are the same. He measured the city with the rod at 12,000 stadia. Its length, width, and height are equal. Now, if you know anything about Stadia, you know that 12,000 of them is a lot. How big is that? Well, it depends on exactly how big a stadium is. But as best as we can determine, one Stadia is about 157 to 175 yards. And that means the city of God is going to be right around 1,200 miles, that's a big city, 
1,200 miles long and 1,200 miles wide, somewhere in that neighborhood. Could be slightly less than that. Jesse says 1,500 miles. Again, depending on the exact distance of a stadium, uh, some parts of the ancient world had a slightly different distance, but somewhere between 1,000 and 1,500 miles long and wide is the city of God going to be. Verse 17, then he measured its walls. It was 144 cubits high. How high is that? Over 200 feet, according to human measurement, which the angel used. Verse 18, the building material of its wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold, as clear as glass. What kind of pure gold is as clear as glass? They have better gold in heaven than we have. The foundations of the city wall were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first foundation is jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophrase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates are twelve pearls, big pearls. Each individual gate was made of a single pearl. The main street of the city was pure gold, as transparent as glass. Picture this in your mind. It's a stunning picture. Verse 22, how many churches are in the city of God? You know, we I come from a city, the city of Birmingham, where there's a church on every street corner because it's in the Bible Belt of the South. Well, surely there's going to be a lot of churches and temples in heaven, right? In the city of God, except there is zero, zero. Verse 22, I did not see a temple in it because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it because the glory of God illuminates it and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never close by day because it'll never be night there. They will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. Nothing unclean will ever enter into it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So my friends, if my understanding of Revelation 21 is right, the plain sense reading of what's going on there, the city of God is going to come to the new earth. The earth is going to be renewed. It is going to be made perfect again. And this massive heavenly city, a thousand miles long to 1500 miles long and wide with these incredible walls is going to come down and heaven and earth are going to unite. And the people of God are going to spend eternity in the city of God. And it sounds like just this mind-blowing, amazing place. Well, how do you get there? How can we be in there? And the answer is, your name has to be written in the Lamb's book of life. And how can that happen? Well, my friends, I want to point you to the good news of Jesus. Because you don't earn your way into the city of God. You don't buy your way into the city of God. You don't sneak your way into the city of God. You don't have a genie make you a prince so you get into the city of God. You look to the Son of God. You look to Jesus, following him in wholehearted faith, believing that what he did outside the city of God, on the cross, when he died outside of the city, suffering the scorn and shame that was due for my sins and your sins. We look to him in believing faith that what he did applies to us. And when we wholeheartedly turn away from everything else and we turn to him as Savior and Lord, we will be saved. We will be justified. Our debts will be wiped out and we will be made perfect, not because of uh anything we have or anything we do, but because of the grace of Jesus, our debts will be wiped out. We will be made perfect and our names will be written in the Lamb's book of life. And that means we will be able to 
enter in and live in eternity in the beautiful and astounding city of God, which is going to come and unite with the earth. And just the barest glimpse we get in scripture of that city is enough to make me long for it with every fiber of my being. No suffering, no hunger, no anxiety, no worry, no heartbreak, no rejection, no depression, no death, no pain, no sickness, no quarantine in the city of God. And that's where we're going to spend eternity. And if that's not encouraging enough to you today, I pray that the God of armies will shoot the encouragement of the city of God into your heart like an armor-piercing arrow, and that it would soak into you, and that you would turn to Jesus and believe the gospel and follow him wholeheartedly. Amen. I'm going to pray, and I know it's time to wrap up. I'm going to ask if any of you have prayer requests, have uh, encouraging words you want to share. I know the message went a little longer than usual today, but um, sometimes you just find these amazing truths in scripture that you can't spend long enough in. And by the way, I we could have brought in a lot more scripture today, like Galatians 4 and other passages. The theme of the city of God is so prevalent in scripture and so comforting and so amazing that we could spend the next few hours talking about it. We're not, but we could. If you have prayer requests, I want to pray for you. I want to pray with you. Um, if you have prayer needs, put them in the comments. If you want to say hello to each other and encourage each other, say hello in the comments and I'm going to pray for us. Father, thank you for your word that encourages us, not the sermon, but the word of God that encourages us. Thank you for this beautiful picture of the city of God that we see in the scripture. Thank you, God, for the hope that comes from that. Thank you, God, for the hope of Revelation 21 and Hebrews 11 and 12. Thank you, God, for the hope of what Jesus did for us on the cross, paying the price for our sins so that we don't have to tremble in terror at a perfectly beautiful and perfectly holy God. Thank you, Jesus, for what you did so that now we don't go to terrifying Mount Sinai aware of our sin and our fleas and our disgusting dung clinging to us. But now because of the blood of the lamb, we are washed clean and we go to the festival gathering at Mount Zion, the party with the people of God and those whose names are written in the book of life and the angel of, of God and the son of God who is there. Thank you, God, that we have Mount Zion, the heavenly city to look forward to. Blessed be your name, O Lord. Let that encouraging message penetrate our hearts this week. Let it constantly be on our mind, bringing us hope in Jesus' name. Amen.